0: Thanks for coming. We're the K Foundation and we're going to show you our film, which is called Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid.
1: And it lasts about an hour and um, hope you enjoy it.
0: Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. They've all found ways of making their own holy magic
2: manifest.
1: Your dream life.
0: Everything that people talk about with regard to magic is all absolutely true as long as you understand that it is happening inside people's minds. I put a spell on you.
2: Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and I'm joined as usual by Kier Milburn. Hello and Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And today we are talking about magic. So guys, um, this was definitely not my idea. So does one of you want to start out and tell us why are we talking about magic on the podcast?
1: Well, it started actually, I saw a tweet by producer Chal, Chal Ravens, who, one of the producers of our uh, magnificent show, Uh, And she just read a book about the KLF by a guy called John Higgs. And the the title of that book was The KLF Chaos Magic and the the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds. And she said, oh, you know, I I can't remember what she 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 wrote a tweet, and I basically straight away got onto our ACFM Slack and said, let's do an episode about magic. Um, uh, And that was partly because that whole, like, the KLF burning a million pounds, you know, what's going on? Why did they do it? You know, it sort of reminded me of that some of the weirdness that was around pop music in like the 80s and that was the early 90s as well actually but then when I started to think about it about like things such as chaos magic uh, we'll explain these terms a bit bit later perhaps just a just a quick one on chaos magic is that, that, that it's really tied up with sort of like belief that the idea that believing in something can ha- really really strongly can have an impact in the world and uh, you know ultimately the sort of the more magical end of it is, you know, that beliefs and thoughts can be materialized in the world and that sort of thing. I just thought that like, that's actually quite an interesting way to get into ideas around belief, ideology, perhaps, you know, the idea that um, believing in something can create can create something in the in in the actual world. Yeah, I'm going to say that. You know that 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 is actually a big part of like common sense, etc. And so I thought it'd be a, an interesting way to get into like the sorts of magical thinking that that exists in common sense, in political thought, etc. Yeah, and and also lots of other things around magic. I've
0: always been interested in it as a concept. I don't know if it has any real political significance. That's something we'd explore. I've always been interested in magic and idea as an idea and the history of magic and esotericism and occultism as ideas. And also I am interested in the, the role that they play in contemporary culture I think one of the big shifts that's happened in popular culture, mass culture, popular fiction, especially—well, you know, not especially—actually, screen fiction, cinema, TV, but also comics, you know, prose fiction. Over the past few decades, is the fantastical, the magical, uh, within which I would include things like superhero narratives, uh, has really become completely central. To popular fiction in a way in which it actually just wasn't, uh, say, in the late 20th century or the mm-hmm. mid 20th century. So that is really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in the way in which there are all kinds of historical and sort of pseudo historical debates around ideas to do with magic. And I'm interested in the way that feeds into mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. the revivals and inventions and reinventions of esotericism and paganism in the 20th century for example. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things to say and I think ultimately it'll be really interesting to think about concepts like enchantment, disenchantment, re-enchantment and how that relates to issues like ecological crisis. So I think there's a lot of different dimensions of this topic that are worth exploring.
2: Yeah, for me this has been a really interesting one. I just want to be completely honest with the listeners and say that when Keir suggested magic, it made me feel quite icky. And I wanted to explore that in in uh, in the first um, sense of when that came up and I was thinking to myself why why is that the case? And I think it's because, you know, I consider myself a materialist and you know someone who is into science and the scientific method and I guess I have this impression that magic makes me fear makes me think of, you know, something that's, you know, dark and the occult and I don't know like on online misogynistic communities and and I don't know and I think maybe because culturally like I'm just not interested in fantasy and I'm not interested in 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 fantasy as as a, a novel Form and so I I was thinking about this and I was like okay well you know obviously you guys convinced me that it was a a good subject to to talk about so I guess some of the 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 in, the things that I'm interested in in relation to magic after having thought about it is things like how what the relationship is between magic and power and accusations of power over over history and that whole idea of you know things being secret versus being public and like whether magic when when magic was thought of as 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 a good thing and when it was a negative thing and and it immediately made me think of you know um the witch trials and and gaslighting and stuff like that but i'm sure that you know you guys have some fantastic stuff to talk about so as you expand i'm sure i will have some things to say but that's that's me on my a little bit distant from this one i have to say
1: I mean, I've got to admit, it's out of my comfort zone as well, but I've actually really quite enjoyed thinking about it and reading about it um, uh, in preparation for this. And perhaps one of the ways we could get into it, Nadia, and sort of like sort of concretize it a little bit, or, or a starting point might be seeing, as we mentioned, the KLF, to explain who the KLF were and like this this link to, perhaps it's a link to Chaos Magic or, or certainly that sort of sphere anyway. The KLF were a band in the uh, early 1990s, made up of Bill Drummond and Jim Courty and they had like basically they were the biggest selling singles band in 1991. They just had a series of like really big hits. We should play basically.
0: something actually. We should play, yeah, something yeah.
1: By KLF. They had this series of hits basically in like 1990 and 91, but they'd already been involved in the music industry before that. So before that, like Bill Drummond was around sort of Eric's and around that sort of punk and post punk scene in Liverpool, and then he managed um, Echo and the Bunny Men in the early 80s. And he managed them really badly because he was managing them in accordance with these really weird ideas. So he'd organize a tour for them to play, and um, when you when you map that tour out onto a map, it would look like a pair of big bunny ears, basically. <laughs> so it'd make no sense at all as a as a if your if your main purpose was to um, to have a nice well organized tour, but like for him, it had some sort of significance, you know, and he wanted to. Disrupt ideas about you know what the music industry was for, I I, I suppose. I love it. Go on. <laughs> um and then he met um Jimmy Courty, who was who'd also had a couple of bands in in, in the eighties. And they had a before they, they formed the KLF, they formed a group called the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, which is a name taken from the Illuminatus trilogy. So in the Illuminatus trilogy, the Justified Agents of Mumu's are the agents of chaos, just to explain that, and that's probably why they were talking about that. We'll talk about this book, the Illuminatus trilogy, a bit, a bit later, I think, because it feeds into things around this sort of chaos magic, uh, Discordianism, and these sorts of like, are they are they are they real or are they put-ons? Are they ironic religions and magical practices, or are they real magical practices? It's not quite clear. Um, and then in 1988, they had a hit. I don't know if you remember this. They called themselves the Time Lords and had the hit called Doctor in the TARDIS. Yes. Um, so they'd had these, they'd been g- going through these things. In fact, Doctor in the TARDIS was the number one hit. And then they wrote a book called The Manual, How to Have a Number One Record, which was this idea that you could just demystify the music industry. You, know, you just lay out these, these, these points. This is how you have a hit record. And they'd sort of... They'd worked with Stock Aitken and Waterman, who this these music producers who just had this series of of, of hits right through the eighties and so forth. So basically, in like 1990, 1991, ninety ninety one, they're the biggest band, the biggest singles band in the world. And so
0: KLF, uh, I was always told that it stood for Copyright Liberation Front, even though copyright begins with a begins with a C. I was told yeah. that was the idea because they used a lot of sampling.
2: Is it like yeah. ACFM, where yeah. it's like an obscure? Yes. So we won't tell people what things stand yeah. for. Yeah, right. So
1: they'll never say what it's what it's for, basically. But yeah, and yeah. So the Justified Ancients of Muumuu. I think they. I think that was just that was a, that was an album they made just out of samples. But they would like sample like huge, like most of the song, <laughs> and basically they they they. Um, I think they had to go and burn all of the albums. They made a big ceremony out of it because I think ABBA objected because they sampled like one of their songs and like changed it a tiny bit and put put it out or something like that. So they're this they're this band who have got like this weird this 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 attitude that they want to destroy the music industry, but they also love pop music and these sorts of things. Uh, so then in 1992, they they basically declare that they've retired from the music industry. They get like nominated. I think they win the Brit Awards that year, and and, like they have to. When you win the Brit Awards, you go and play at the Brit Awards, and they got like extreme noise terror. I think to play a a hardcore punk (laughs) version of uh, Three AM Eternal, (laughs) Uh, uh, and then the idea was that they were going to dismember the corpse of a sheep on stage and throw throw the sheep into the audience, but they didn't do that. They couldn't get the sheep in, so they dumped it at one of the. Outside one of the after parties, with a note tied to it saying, "We, I died for your sins," or something like that. <laughs> so anyway, they have this—you know—that's that, the sort of stuff there. That's the sort of shtick they're getting up to. Then in 1991, they, they declare they send out a message saying, "You know, we have retired. The KLF has retired from the music industry." So they're the biggest-selling singles act. They retire from the music industry and they delete all of their records, which means that you you can't buy them in any format. Uh, they. I think they can't get played on a, on the radio. I'm not sure. Hang on a minute! Anyway. What
2: do you mean, delete records when everybody had records and hard copy?
1: Oh no, no, yeah. You, if, but basically, that you will not be able to buy one of their records ever again in any format. And this apparently this cost this, you know, this probably cost them millions, basically many millions. They weren't too bothered about about that. Then they set up, they rebranded the the two of them as the K Foundation as like an arts foundation. So. In 1992, they basically they they sort of accelerate this, like you know, we're gonna we're gonna disrupt the music industry by basically nailing a million pounds to some wood, taking it to the Isle of Jura, and then burning a million pounds. Basically, they fill to the where the Isle of Jura, just a a remote island uh, up in Scotland. They find they find a disused disused building, no one around. Just them and somebody videoing it, and they just burn a billion pounds. It takes ages. It gets really boring. They filmed it. <laughs> um, and this is sort of like that act has sort of dominated their lives, basically. And the book, there was a the documentary I watched about it recently as well. And it's all about like, they, they've never really come to terms with it. They never really understood why they built burnt a million pounds. They sort of filmed it and then toured around the the, the country, showing the films and asking people why they burnt it. And everybody was really outraged. And you should use this for charity or something like that, basically. Uh, and so it's this 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 idea of like you know they they were a successful band who wanted to. To sort of disrupt things, they wanted to add an element of chaos. They wanted some sort of like to do things and not explain why they do them. They would and do things and actually not understand why they do them. So it's quite a lot of the book is about how they they felt as though they were they were sort of caught up in this dialogue that went on between the two of them, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Carty and that, you know they basically egg themselves on to do these things, not knowing why, but feel as though they couldn't get out of it. Um, one, at one point in the, the, in the Brit Awards in 1992, they were discussing how to fuck things up. And one of the ideas they had was to cut one of them, cut their hands off and throw it off, throw one of their hands into the audience. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that they they only just managed to pull back from that sort of thing. As though they were caught up in these ideas between them um, that was pulling them along, dragging them along and they end up in this disused this barn burning a million pounds not really know why they're doing it not being able to explain it afterwards and then obviously having quite a big effect on their lives subsequently basically wow cool
2: that just sounds like they're being subversive yeah <laughs> i mean it just sounds subversive where is the like how is this related to magic
1: yeah so the so the book by uh by by john higgs it, it basically it sort of says like all the way through that that you know the echo and the bunny stuff Bill Drummond has these sort of sitting ideas that are sort of non-rational, and these sort of like like non-rational causations, where you know he he thinks it's really really important to to to, to create these these tours for Echo and the Bunny Men, which which look like a pair of a pair of rabbit ears, basically. But he can't explain it. Do you know what I mean? So John Higgs says that like this is part of like their it's basically akin to chaos magic. And one of the things that was that had driven Bill Drummond in particular was he when he was young, he went to go and see a play version of the Illuminatus trilogy. So the Illuminatus trilogy is this sort of like uh, this huge sort of fictional piece of fiction, which sort of like ties together this idea of, of that there's this, this this secret society to Illuminata who are controlling the world. It was written as a piece of fiction. People have sort of like included that it's a, it's a commonplace in contemporary conspiracy theories to take it seriously these days um and basically yeah so it's that that like that that sort of like weird weird weirdness around pop music it sits alongside this idea of like of chaos magic of beliefs having like a power of their own and you can get drawn into it drawn you know as though there was some sort of like magic spell cast between the two of them who were dragging them towards this fate that they didn't actually they wouldn't have gone towards if they hadn't met sort of thing, that sort of idea. That's the sort of link to to magic that um, is drawn out in the book.
0: So let's explain what we mean by this term discordianism. Discordianism is a sort of joke religion invented by a couple of American guys in the early sixties. And, its practitioners claim to worship the goddess Eris, the Greek goddess of discord, disorder and chaos. And insofar as it has an actual philosophy, it's sort of borrowing from Zen and Taoism and Nietzschean philosophy, and it's anticipating certain strands of postmodernism. And its basic idea is that all belief systems, all ways of viewing the world are perhaps equally arbitrary. So what you should do is sort of play around with different types of beliefs or have no real beliefs and beyond that it's never really clear what it even means to be a discordian apart from to own some of the books produced by some of these guys or possibly belong to a group that perpetrates pranks such as deliberately trying to make people believe conspiracy theories because actually what you're doing is satirising the very idea of belief by doing that. And... I actually think discordianism does contribute to the development of a sort of uh, individualistic, libertarian, almost solipsistic uh, common sense within the culture of Silicon Valley uh, by the 1990s. It's not—it's certainly not the only contributor to like, the emergence of what Richard Barbrook calls the Californian ideology, but I think it is actually one of the components of it. I mean, the way I would situate the, that episode in terms of a history of modern magic is there's this big uh, uptick of interest in things like magic as a magical practice and at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, which is really the moment when modern sort of occultism and magical practice is born. I mean, it's partly to do with the sort of invention or the discovery of the idea of the unconscious, you know, which which you know is manifest in the invention of psychoanalysis and but it's already psychoanalysis itself is coming out of like the discovery of hypnotism and mesmerism and things like that in the nineteenth century. And there's a lot of fascination. And so with this idea of the unconscious, unrational, and the sense that there that there are these aspects of human experience which are sort of not accessible to ordinary conscious rationality, but are incredibly powerful and you know, have a powerful effect in the culture, powerful effects in politics, and in our lives. And there's lots of different ways people want to explore that. You know, Freud wants to turn it into a, a sort of science, which will have a therapeutic Objective, but the surrealists, you know, want to create a whole artistic movement out of exploring it. And and one of the aspects of that interest in the idea of the unconscious and its power is this idea that well, actually, maybe the maybe traditions like ritual magic, like that you can trace back to ancient Egypt, maybe what they're actually doing is they're finding some organised way of like tapping into this power. Maybe you can actually find some way of accessing what are either a sort of collective unconscious or a personal unconscious, which is some sort of wellspring of either just extraordinary inspiration, or maybe it is actually possible to cause it to have material effects in the world. And this set of ideas, you know, they get reconfigured and re and played out in lots of different ways over the decades. And in the seventies and eighties, there's quite a lot of kind of it, it interchange between that set of ideas and traditions and indeed people starting to study things like chaos theory and various forms of psychology and even sorts of self-help coming out of things like the human potential movement in the 60s. And there's this quite, in the 80s in particular, there's this quite weird mixture of that includes elements like conspiracy theories and it includes. It includes people being really interested in Wicca and paganism, and it includes being interested in I did, trying to think through the philosophical implications of like quantum theory and the the, the the idea that mathematically at least we inhabit a universe of multiple overlapping worlds, and what does all that mean? And and also this does this does end up connecting with various you know strands of sort of gallery art practice and and even strands of popular music. So you get things like the temple of psychic youth a sort of sort of a sort of occult organization which comes out of the the industrial music scene which is part of the sort of post-punk scene in britain and a a lot of the time in all of these traditions and this is this is true of the surrealists back in the 20s there is a sort of there's a sort of continuum between people who think that you might engage in some weird sort of ritual or some divinatory game where you like roll dice or use the tarot or the I Ching to try and determine a course of action or something like that just as a sort of psychological exercise or just as a sort of symbolic refutation of Western ideas of reason or something like that. And people who think that actually you know the it maybe the i ching really can predict the future you know maybe the tarot really can you know maybe can guide your actions in some cosmic way maybe you really can you know make people fall in love with you or make yourself get rich or something like that by by tapping into cosmic forces or all the collective unconscious, or maybe there's no difference between the collective unconscious and actual cosmic forces external to human minds. And so there's this very blurry area and there is, there's a, there is a lot of it going on in the eighties in particular, but I think you'd probably have to do a more detailed history to sort of explain why, why the eighties in particular, actually is the moment when this kind of bleeds into popular culture. And I, there's probably two main explanations you could give of why that is. I mean, one would be sort of a fairly positive explanation that it's it's like the culmination of the way in which, you know, pop music becomes a site for the, yeah you know, they're testing out all kinds of radical ideas, you know, from situationism to Marxism to post structuralism. And this is just part of that. You know, you could situate the KLF or the Temple or Psychic TV as the band associated with Templar psychic youth, situate their interest in sort of vaguely occult ideas that are also associated with things like surrealism. You could situate that alongside, you know, Scritti Politi being into Gramsci and Derrida or, you know, the Gang of Four drawing a Marxist theory. You could situate it alongside all those things as all all outcomes of this kind of the intellectual crucible which was British art schools in the 70s and 80s you could do it that way I think you could also be a lot more down on it and say well look actually this is the sort of leftovers of the failure and defeat of the new left and the counterculture in the 70s I
2: was gonna say that's that's what instinctively
0: once the the revolutionary promise of the 60s and 70s has been defeated what are you left with you're left with burning a million quid and not even knowing why as some kind of gesture of defiance and I mean, I think there's something to all of those explanations. That does speak to a whole interesting question about the whole, you know, the sort of history of the concept of magic and and what its relationship is to forms of radicalism uh, and also forms of political
1: conservatism. Actually, Voodoo Ray by a guy called Gerald, or, or also known as Gerald Simpson, is uh, from uh, 1988. A sort of sort of an acid, well, a hit from the Acid House era. And so Voodoo Ray is actually a sample from a Derek and Clive album, which were um, comedy albums that Peter Cook and and Dudley Moore used to produce. And so uh, Gerald Simpson was, was trying to sample Peter Cook saying Voodoo Rage, Voodoo Rage. But the memory of the sampler was so small, it came out as Voodoo Ray and a legend was born.
0: On a voodoo theme, uh, like Voodoo Ray, Miles Davis, uh, this classic track, Miles Davis track, "Miles Runs the Voodoo Down," which is from Bitches, Bitches Brew, which is um, an album. The you know the cover of which is all uh, you know, it has this kind of cosmic and magical imagery. And, you know, Bitches Brew is a is kind of a pun on Witches Brew, it's alluding to an idea of magic as a kind of feminine power.
1: When i was coming up as a young punk or post-punk the the sort of countercultural scene of, of that time did include things such as like pranks you know which looked a little bit like um burning a million pound quite an expensive prank but there were things such as the um, loom panics catalog and uh, i've got a there used to be this this thing in the US called research. This it produced these big books around around sort of counterculture. One of them, uh, it was uh, I think it was to do with um, semiotics. You know, it's an offshoot of that. And one of those is about pranks. And there was this whole tradition of like you know post-situationist pranks and you know playing tricks on people and like playing with belief and so forth and things such as discordianism, which is this you know which,
0: which let's is not going to
1: discordianism a, now. Let's go. Let's okay. come back to that. Yeah, okay, we'll come back to that. But it was the, it was that sort of like that played a, a role, you know. It was part of that 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 sort of playing with reality, sort of idea, was, was definitely part of, you know, that the, the wider sort of counterculture, if you could still call it that. And then, but the,
2: isn't the, isn't the sorry to interrupt? But isn't the central thing that makes magic magic the question about like is this real? Because. It it feels like it, talking about trick like tricksters and tricks and surrealism is is not the same thing. I'm trying to understand what we're actually talking about.
0: Well, I think there's a weird continuum, isn't there? There's this continuum. Okay. okay. Well, it is a whole. So part of our problem here is none of us are actually involved with you know esoteric magical practice, although Thank we know God. that there are people who are. There are people who are. And I do know people who are, but I haven't sat down and talked to them about them for this show. I have talked to them about it before. And it's very difficult when talking to people who are really into this stuff to get a, a clear handle from an exterior perspective on whether they are saying that conducting some ritual where they, for example, you know, invoke uh, either a completely made-up, you know, deliberately sort of invented you know, a uh, magical entity who they uh, claim- want to be in communication with, or they invoke some ancient Greek or Roman or Mesopotamian god or something for some sort of purpose. Whether they think they are really genuinely communicating with some sort of spiritual entity that actually exists outside of their imagination, or whether they see it as purely a, psycholog- a sort of psychological exercise which might have effects on them in terms of how they feel about and relate to the world, or whether they're operating from an epistemological perspective according to which there's really no difference and there is this gray zone there's this gray zone between actually believing that Isis or mother ahihuuska or you know the machine the DMT machine elves or great cthulhu or whatever <laughs> actually exi- actually exist in the sense that people ordinarily use the term Actually exist, meaning it they are ex, they are objects which exist in the world which would exist whether or not people believed in them or thought about them, and have effects in the world irrespective of the the, the um, actions or intent of those people. Mm. And on the other hand, them just not existing at all and just being complete fictions, just like stories people might tell, that would be fun but have no relevance to the real world. But then there's is you know there's this gray zone within which people you might say well. To the extent that these things might represent like powerful psychological archetypes that. Um, people having some sort of ritual engagement with people thinking about a lot might have a real effect
2: yeah no this is useful this is good i like this this is this is a good way to go talk about it
0: loads of people here are into yoga for example or things like yoga meditation in like doing sort of devotional work by doing mantra meditation or something focused on one of the one of the hindu deities Uh, Like Shiva or Vishnu or Lakshmi uh, or um, Tibetan, say sort of um, Buddhist deities like Tara, and most of those people, if you if you really pin them down, are not going to say, "Yeah, I believe somewhere out there in the cosmos, like Shiva exists and he's looking at me, and I can either talk to him or not talk to him." They're going to say, "Well, Shiva is a sort of archetype. He's like this image of." sort of cosmic energy or of of the universe as constituted by cosmic love and it's useful psychologically to imagine him or it as a personified being and engaging in some sort of intensive meditation on on that might be subjectively experienced as devotion to an exterior and really existing deity even though I might also accept that from a a scientific perspective that's not what's really going on what's really going on is a kind of is I mean I'm sort of Engaged in a psychological process in deliberately cultivating psychological states in my in my own self. That's one way of thinking about it. There's also this whole zone of things like neurolinguistic programming, which is a whole psychological practice where people just deliberately engage in self hypnosis, and they believe that well, if you actually if you hypnotize yourself to believe that you will definitely get that promotion, then you are much more likely to get it and then it gets into all these kind of popular versions of that like sort of manifesting Manifesting, and i was gonna say so there is this gray zone within which all these things exist i think i don't care if you don't want me i'm yours right now i'll put a spell on you because
1: So Jay Hawkins or Screaming Jay Hawkins as he's also known uh, song I put a spell on you you know is part in that tradition of of seeing um seduction or love as 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 akin to magic. Uh, the story goes that um that that was originally going to be recorded or they they recorded a version of it just sort of as as a straight sort of blues song and then they all got drunk in the recording studio and started wilding out and that's when jay hawkins became known as screaming jay hawkins and started um, screaming and whooping it up basically uh, there was a little bit of of magic in the room there's a, there's a big big tradition of like of of thinking about or associating um blues music and sort of musical virtuosity with you know selling your soul to the devil uh, at the crossroads and all that sort of stuff that we haven't really got into
0: yeah well it's robert johnson is supposed to have sold his soul to the devil that's how he got the secret of the, the, the blues but also for example paganini the late 18th century italian violinist who is basically the first great virtuoso of European music was also said to have sold his soul to the devil. It's, well, it's true. Well, there is a very long association mm. of music and the power of music to alter people's emotions with magic, with an idea, you know, with some idea, you know, those th- things that seems related, and also those things are both often related to powers, to seduction, to the power that infatuation and romantic love can have over people. Like all these things, which in some ways sort of trouble. The idea of the rational self have historically been associated with magic, and that's, well, I mean, that's partly why, like from the late from the early 20th century onwards, advocates for magical practice have kind of retroactively con- construed, like even ancient magical practice about which you know we only know really what was written down by mostly male kind of you know elite class philosophers. As having as having perhaps been better understood as some kind, kind of radical or subversive practice mm-hmm. precisely because you know it, it, it's about playing with affect playing with the body you know playing with emotions and the unconscious in ways that a kind of rationalist tradition of philosophy and a kind of male dominated tradition an elite dominated tradition have conventionally have conventionally you know disregarded and seen as sort of negative and been hostile to. I mean I mean my understanding of the current historiography is that the the wave of kind of writers about magic in the 20th century who who saw it as a kind of historically radical practice. Are, are currently thought of as themselves having been engaged in a bit of wishful thinking that there, there isn't a lot of evidence that anybody really ever thought about it that way themselves but you know that might we might just be that might just be a kind of episode of revisionism um, I don't know enough about the history to know if that's true but that is really interesting in relation to music as well because certainly I mean it's something I'm always telling students you can go right back to plato And find philosophers saying music is just bad for you and it's bad for you because it can kind of mess with your head in ways which are related to are explicitly related to some idea that feminine experience is about kind of emotion and the body and male experience is about reason and the brain and you know the idea of magic as maybe something as actual magical practice is something you might want to investigate in the 20th century and subsequently is often connected to this idea that well the western tradition has consistently since plato has marginalized and denigrated music and emotion and the body and women and people who aren't you know white european and people who are not members of the social elite and magical practice because it, it is denigrated by those people and is associated with those marginal groups and experiences might be something we would want to celebrate and explore it might be something that's really powerful i mean you know the problem from a left perspective is that there's very little evidence the magical practice has actually achieved very much for any of those marginal groups that the historical record seems to be that if you are a member of a marginal group like what you want to do is acquire a scientific understanding of the world uh, enter into you know collective struggle with other members of your marginal group and takes you know <laughs> take state power so that, i mean that's partly the dilemma isn't it of, of looking to magic as a solution to marginalization there's not much evidence really that it ever has been one for people
1: just to go back to like that this this sort of like history of like beliefs in magic, et cetera, or 20th century history of belief in magic. One of the things that happens in the 1970s and then into the 1980s with the, with the birth of things that then become called chaos magic, et cetera, is that like people are really concerned to strip out the religiosity w- which surrounds those sorts of magical practices around the beginning of the 20th century, like around theosophy and um, Alistair Crowley and these sorts well, of things. Well, not just then. I mean, the whole notion of separating magic from religion I would
0: say it's a complete 20th century invention. It's a complete invention of the 20th century and it is really it's one of the most interesting thing it, episodes in that history I think.
2: Okay, this makes this is starting to make more sense then now because all while the two of you were speaking probably for the last few minutes I was thinking this to me sits in the realm of spiritualism, belief you know totems all of that area and it's it's i'm feeling like i want to see the venn diagram like where does m- magic fit in with this and and you saying that cl- clarifies it for me jeremy so like the idea that ma- you're talking about in western society separates these things out the idea that belief and religion is one thing and then magic is this other can thing. i just
1: talk to the gray zone thing no one interrupt me for five minutes right fine yeah fine. um uh, so like yeah so that whole chaos magic thing about stripping out religiosity and it's and, and there's supposed to be a focus on like what works practicality it, it it what works and it doesn't matter what what what's causing it sort of idea basically. And so I was talking to my friend Gareth Brown who's was really involved in surrealism and like occultism and surrealism really overlapped in the sort of like post-war period there was this sort of turn to occult sort of practices by people like Breton etc. And he was saying, look, you know, one of the ways in which people work this through is like, is to it, or work that grey zone through, Jeremy, is that they, they sort of say, well, let, let's not think about it as in, do we believe this is happening? And we can think, think about it as supposing in, instead. It's like, if we suppose that this is happening, uh, what does it do for us? Do you know what I mean? So that's the way in which you can uh, deal with that grey zone. So if we suppose that there are some magical forces in the world, and if we do this, we will inculcate them. It doesn't matter if they're there or not. We can put that to one side because we can sort of observe the effects that that, that take place in us. I, you know, I got to admit when I'm when I'm sort of looking at or, or, or reading or about pe- what people are doing, a lot of the time it is just sort of it seems to be like you know. Psychological preparedness, but with a little bit of trying to disorientate yourself so it seems a bit weirder, etc. But you know, that's I think that's one of the ways in which you you, that that sort of gets worked through. And I think that's useful for us to thinking about why does it happen in the 70s and 80s, basically? Because I think that this sort of form of magical thinking, like it hasn't disappeared, it's sort of like stopped being called magic, or, or in some cases, it has stopped being called magic, but like you know, it's pretty dominant at the moment. If you think about something like the cosmic right and Trump, you know, you can see both sides of this sort of like this thing about belief, basically. I Trump is like a real, really, really into positive thinking. He used to go in, I think he might still do. I used to go to Norman Peel's church. So Norman Peel was this person who made a sort of Christian positive thinking sort of religion, basically. And so Trump is really, really, really into that. And you can think of that as like sincere belief of, of like a pretty cynical kind, sincere belief, or something like and then on the other side the people around Trump are playing with like meme magic and this sort of stuff and this sort of like you know trying to disrupt belief basically you know pretending to believe one thing then we're going to play and believe another thing
0: it's a good point about sort of the irrationalism and the magical thinking of uh, American Christianity. I mean, arguably, there's a good argument that sort of American Protestantism is uh, it's a completely distinctive religion mm. that's, uh, that's emerged over the past few decades, and it, it does have all kinds of magical features. Actually, there's this belief in supernatural intervention in the everyday world. There's, this, there's a sort of pantheon. There's, a, there's the belief in Satan as a sort of evil power in the world. I mean, scholars of religion uh, and science, but especially scholars of religion, are obviously always arguing about well, what is the definition of historically this, the definition of magic? What's the social definition of magic? Because uh, if you go back like a few hundred years, and certainly you go back to ancient times, then most of what we would think of as magic is just looks just like what is standard conventional religious practice. It, it is you you use certain kinds of ritual to try to persuade supernatural entities you know, the gods to intervene in the world or in the cosmos on your behalf and you know you go back to sort of the polytheistic religions of you know the mediterranean are the ones we we know most about in the west in pre-christian times and That's just what everybody does. I mean, that is just religion. That's it's not just religion. It's all, I mean, it's also connected to your general understanding of how the universe works and how you might or might not understand or intervene in it. And sacrificing to the gods, trying to get the gods to do things for you is just completely normal. That's how, that's how you, as I say, that's how you relate to the world. And uh, for me, the probably the most persuasive sort of scholarship on even the, on what separates magic from religion in that context is it's just a, is that ma- magic is still usually taught about as something bad, even in sort of ancient times like Babylon and then Greece and Rome. It's usually taught about something bad but basically the, what makes it bad is just that you it's just that you're engaged in some kind of ritual practice which is trying to invoke supernatural entities but you you but it's illegal Uh, There are legal, there are always legally and social codes determining what forms of ritual practice, what uh, which supernatural entities you can try to enter into relationships with, what you can try to get them to do for you, and some of those things are okay, and some of them are not okay, and it's the ones that are not okay they get classified as sorcery or magic or witchcraft.
2: Yes, this is an interesting point.
0: And that's pretty much the same uh, right up through the renaissance and up into the early modern period. And what the question of what exactly what forms of ritual practice will get classified as illegal or immoral or irreligious and which ones will be considered within the general purview of acceptable religious practice obviously varies massively over time.
2: It's not just the stuff that women do, is it? Perhaps magic and bad.
0: Well, that is a really interesting, that's interesting because the thing that many people will know most about, I think you already alluded to, Nadia, was the, the witch panics of the late, sort of late medieval, early modern period. So this specific idea that. Uh, there are these thing- there are these people called witches, and they're probably mostly women. Although actually, at the, at the beginning of this in the the fifteenth century, they're not mostly women. They're usually aristocratic men who you want who you have a political problem with, uh, and it's later on it becomes that it's mostly women, and they are engaged in something called witchcraft, and that is understood to be essentially uh, entering into some kind of ritual and formal relationship with Satan uh, and demonic forces in order to get power or or riches in the world. And that is considered very bad. And it's assumed that that there are these organized networks of these people. And there is kind of intermittent persecution or prosecution of individuals who are accused of witchcraft, and then it really escalates over the course of the 16th into the first half of the 17th centuries, and it culminates in the notorious uh, European witch trials in places like Spain and, and, and Britain, which end up, say, in the early 17th century in Britain. They're heavily focused on women. It's usually women, usually older women, usually women who are seen as being some kind of economic burden on the community, who are persecuted for witchcraft. And then there's this historical theory proposed from the late 19th century onwards that the witches who were being persecuted were actually members of some ancient pre-Christian religion which had survived the Christianisation of first the Roman Empire and then Europe more broadly. And they had survived as this sort of underground religion engaged in some kind of pre-Christian religious practice and that that was what was being uh, persecuted, that was what was being suppressed. And in fact, that historical theory was so widely disseminated and so widespread and and sort of unchallenged for several decades, that lots of people still think that's true. Uh, but I can tell you that like no contemporary historian uh, thinks that's true, that, there's no, that it's just, it was a nice idea, it was a nice theory, but it was a theory that really came out of, Studies of like sort of indigenous beliefs um, in the kind of imperial colonial world of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and this belief that uh, there must have been something like that which um, explained witchcraft, and there's no there's no evidence for any of that. So, and it's not really it. There are these kind of periodic, you know, revivals of interest in things like astrology or alchemy, etc. But it's not; it's really only in the modern period. It's really only from the kind of late nineteenth century when this at the same time as there's this huge technological revolution going on with the, the invention of like telephones and powered flight and cars and cinema and all this stuff. Which I think, in some ways, is part of the context. Actually, I mean, my uh, apparently my granddad, my mum's dad, who I never met, you know, he died, you know, decades before I was born. Used to have a saying. I mean, he was a man of the mid twentieth century, which is whenever people would talk about things like the occult or magic, he'd say, or ghosts, he'd say, well, if once if you've seen, if you can believe television, you can believe anything he was of the generation who saw television for the first time and there might be and uh, there is some sort of cultural there are some cultural historians who see it in those terms they, they think that actually the invention of things like cinema and sound recording and telegraphy and telephony are so kind of uncanny they're so weird that they mean that people just start to people just think well anything might be true actually if you can do in that material, stuff do that anything,
2: makes sense that makes sense, and
0: it's only really with the the development of things like the the Theosophy, the Theosophists, you know, the Society of the Golden Dawn, these kind of occult research organisations in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, that you really get people who start to who start to talk about the idea of themselves being magical practitioners, not as something to be sort of secretive about, be or be ashamed, of, or to accuse other people of doing, but you actually get people claiming that they're engaged in some sort of magical practice. And I, from what I know about the kind of scholarship and historiography on this, I mean, part of what's going on is that lots of texts from like the late antique period, from like the fifth, sixth century, where what people are mostly concerned with is certain kinds of mystical experience. They're trying to cultivate a relationship with God in a way which is pretty r- familiar to any practitioner of mysticism today, or people who are really into the kinds of yoga I was talking about earlier. But they're being interpreted in a more modern, according to more modern ideas about what magic might mean. And then over the course of the, from the early 20th century, with the activities of people like Alistair Crowley and then later generations of modern occultists, you get this idea that somehow magic is a kind of ritual practice which can invoke cosmic forces to create effects in the world or on individuals, but is set, and that idea becomes separated from the idea that what you're doing is you're sort of communicating with the, with gods as kind of real entities and, and that sort of becomes central to the uh, magical practice from the mid 20th century because you also what you also get from the 30s, 40s onwards is the, the invention of modern paganism and religions like Wicca um, which are claimed by some of their founders, especially in Britain. To be direct continuations of, a, of, of ancient Bronze Age or fertility religions, for example, but uh, no no historian takes those, those claims seriously today. I mean, it, it, the general consensus is that is that modern Wicca, witchcraft, paganism are, are invented in the 30s and 40s, and most modern pagan, most contemporary pagans accept that they accept that there's no historical continuity between the practices of the Druids or you know ancient pre Christian polytheist and contemporary religious practice but they see themselves as engaged in a sort of spiritual practice which takes inspiration from the knowledge that people were practicing something comparable to the to what they're doing to so thousands of years ago and that's you know i'm not i wouldn't condemn anybody for doing that but you can see on the basis of all this context then by the sort of 60s and 70s, you get people who are really interested in these sort of you know ritual practice, forms of polytheism, and it's, there's a very, as we keep saying, there's this really increasingly blurry zone between people who might really want to kind of pick a god and worship them in a kind of devotional way, and people who want to strip out any sort of devotional practice, even from the forms of magical practice which they would see as largely psychological in nature. And then in the 70s, yeah, by the 70s, you get the emergence of things like chaos magic where people are wanting to use magical techniques of visualisation, of sort of what we might, you know, trance, of ritual invocation of imagined you know supernatural entities in order to with in order to have certain effects either on themselves or on the wider world or on the people around them and they are wanting to strip out any sort of religious or devotional aspect from that but then if you think about what's involved in that it's probably not surprising that for example i mean the key most of the, the key figures involved with the thing emergence of things like chaos magic in the 70s like politically they were on the right they they are associated with mostly with forms of right-wing libertarianism because you know the whole that they, they basically they they want to use all these techniques to either have effects on themselves or on the world and, they, and wanting to detach those techniques from any sort of a spiritual or mystical framework is, you know, it, it's, it's a very capitalistic sort of logic, actually. It's a logic, it's, it tends to be very individualistic. And, you know, there's a, there's a strand of very deep individualism in that particular tradition. And you can associate it with a certain kind of Nietzscheanism. You know, Alistair Crowley, the sort of far, one of the fathers of modern occultism, is famous for his saying, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. You can understand all this also as just a, a sort of cu- one of the many cultural responses to people from the late 19th century onwards realizing. That the culture they had inherited, as like Victorians, you know, Europeans or Americans, was completely arbitrary. You know, up until like the seven I would say about the sort of eighteen eighties, a member of the educated classes in say Britain or America, like firmly sees themselves as the inheritors of this noble tradition of culture which has come down to them from ancient Greece, you know, through the Christian tradition, through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and sort of tells them what is true in the world and tells them what is good in the world. And then, you know, it, you know from the kind of late 19th century through to the experience of the aftermath of the First World War and the sort of crisis of imperialism and the emergence of things like communism – you know, people are much more likely to start being confronted by the fact. Well, actually, all this stuff that we've been taught about how the world works and all to work—it's not just the only way of thinking about the world. Like, there are loads of cultures around the world. There are loads of people around the world, and there have been loads of moments in history when members of imperial elites have thought they had all the answers, and then their civilizations just collapsed. So, you know, what is it all about, really? And and one of the one of the solutions people come up with in response to that crisis is to adopt something. Some sort of philosophy, well, whereby, well, there is no such thing as truth. Yeah, everybody just should believe whatever they want to believe, or whatever makes them feel good to believe. And Maybe and and then some people get into the idea that maybe you can deliberately organise your beliefs about the world in a way that makes you feel good or, or has the effect you want it to have on mm-hmm. yourself or the people around you. And maybe things like magical rituals and borrowing bits of religion from sixth-century Greece or you know ancient Egypt or stuff is a way of doing all that. But but really, on some level, this is all the response to the collapse of any real be- actual belief in. In the possibility of objective norms or any kind of objective you know, social or, or scientific truth, so uh, so that is one way I think of understanding all that history. And then you know you would have to say, for example, in the past few decades, I mean, the, probably the the biggest element in that history is like the mm-hmm. in the reemergence of interest in things like shamanism and animism and forms of indigenous belief. And, like, there are loads of people now who do ayahuasca retreats, and they firmly believe that the experiences they have on their ayahuasca retreats, like apparently communicating with spiritual entities, have some kind of a concrete reality, like beyond being mere sort of hallucinations. And that's another, that's a kind of example of those kind of beliefs. But, like Keir was saying, there's also, there's loads of people who really believe in astrology, even though modern forms of astrology have a, a best a tangential relationship, even to the forms of astrology which existed so before the 19th century. And there's loads of people who believe in like manifesting and positive thinking and all kinds of, you know, what we could call magical thinking, are really, really widespread, like especially in the States. I mean, they're so widespread that it's probably when we're not really living in a historical moment when you can say that stuff is marginal.
2: Right, I think we should play It's a Kind of Magic by Queen because I just love Queen, that's why
0: Do you want to say anything about why you love Queen?
2: No, I mean what is there to say other than the fact that I just I grew <laughs> up listening to Queen in my dad's car on holidays in the Isle of Wight and I absolutely love Queen I love the sound, I love Freddie Mercury I just love Brian May's guitar I just think it's such a it's funky is the wrong word but I just, yeah, I love Queen the day will- So, I'm interested in this concept of the grey area because, I mean, I would say that I'm probably somebody who believes in manifesting. I have a critical analysis of where that sits in culture. But, in the same way as we talked about in the episode of care, that, you know, there's a part of what could fall under the catchment of self care, which is just necessary to survive in the world, but then also there's an ideology and a culture around it that we can be critical of, kind of feel the same way about manifesting because I think, I I don't know, I feel like there's a more scientific explanation to manifesting, which is that it's, it's a catchment term for putting in place certain things in the world to achieve what you want and it's kind of couched in the a little this kind of mysticism of the concept of manifesting but i don't know i just feel like if you if you want to make things happen i don't know there's a self actualization thing there which i know is not sexy on the left but i kind of really do believe in and i don't see that doesn't seem to me like magic because it's stuff that you've done so it's like you you act in the world and then the manifesting language will say, well, the universe will give back to you. But it also makes sense within the, the world of, you know, talking about things like kindness and love and, you know, you reap what you sow, which are things that I definitely believe in. And I don't think they're magical, but maybe they are. Maybe this is magic. So I guess I'm interested in like where, what function it fulf- fulfills in society and ideology at the time like what's considered to be magic and why, you know, like why there are certain trends and what we would label as magic, as a pejorative, and what would be, you know, it's magical, like in a, I don't know, airy-fairy positive thinking way. I don't know.
0: So Nadia, is, ma- is manifesting the same as positive thinking or is it different?
2: Yeah, I don't think it is the same. I mean, I think it exists in the same like could exist in the same world. But if you think about it practically, like I would approach this from a perspective of like, why, like, why have these concepts come out in society now? Like, why are they fashionable? I, I don't know that much about the history, but I can I, what I know is that part of the reason my analysis is, part of the reason why these kind of conceptions or way of thinking about actions is, 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 is actually about agency. And this is where I think, actually, there might be a Venn diagram around this. I'm talking about Venn diagrams several times today, but I think positive thinking on one extreme is this idea that you can just think your way into the life that you want. And I think where it's different to manifesting is, I think, practically how manifesting is used is that it's basically saying you can make the things that you want to achieve in your life happen. And I think that fulfills a certain function in society because there's a lurch for agency. Try, people are trying to get control over their lives when they're overwhelmed by, you know, the uh, the dissolution of uh, the social contract of, you know, like stable employment and, and jobs and, you know, not understanding where the future is for them, etc. So it's this, it's this very appealing concept, which can dip into, of course, the alt-right. But I would like to defend the idea that the the concept that you can arrange certain actions in a row to achieve what you want and that might be like a career change or it might be that you want to go live in a different country or it might be that you want a different kind of relationship with people or that you want to go through like a series of you know therapeutic experiences to be a different kind of person like those all require certain steps and I think there's a there's a way of understanding manifesting where actually it is just a practical program where it's saying if you if you believe it starts with does start with belief you have to believe that these things are possible that you can change or that you can change your life and the way that you manifest it is by taking those steps. Now if there is a school of thought that manifesting is just like I'm just going to sit down and meditate over it and that's it. I don't think that's going to work like from I I just don't believe that. I that's not the belief system I I I I uh, subscribe to. However, having said that, what I do believe in is the power of meditation and I I have a meditative practice and the meditative practice is really important for me because it allows me to have a, a level of perspective on my life and my actions and the decisions that I'm making. And that helps me and that, fulf- that, that fulfills a function for me within, you know, that kind of world of like manifesting and like living the life that I want to live. There's a politics around that kind of uh, getting what you want in life, which is very critiqued from the left, which I will then defend because I, I think it's important that people are actors in their life and don't see everything as, you know, don't uh, see themselves as uh, sitting in the backseat of, of their life experience. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense?
1: I think that is the nub of it, basically. The nub of what we're talking about is, you know, what is the power of belief? Like, what are the limitations of the power of just belief? That's like at the nub of like the, the whole idea of chaos magic and like the, the idea that basically you there are practices in which you're trying to boil down intention or something. So I'm really concentrate intention. So one of the influences on chaos magic is this sigil magic where you where you create a sign out of... A phrase basically you you boil down a phrase or a word that you want to you that uh, sums up your intention and you want to boil it down to a symbol a bit like the symbol of prince when prince prince became no longer prince but the symbol previously known as prince you know that's one of the influences on chaos magic the other one is like this discordianism, this idea that like um you should really really believe in something. But like, you should really, really believe in another thing the next day. Do you know what I mean? And it's like belief dis- disconnected from meaning, basically. You know, I can sort of see how that fits into a sort of 60s, 70s sort of counterculture thing where you're trying to disrupt these really solid sort of forms of of, of belief, solid immovable sort of forms of belief around it, that uh, in the sort of perhaps the Ford era or something like that. And that that sort of like practices around magic and around belief, et cetera. Of course, they can go in lots of different ways. But I think like, you know, that idea that like, you know, you can play with belief, which is this discordant idea. And Robert Anton Wilson was a sort of libertarian. He thought he was called himself a libertarian socialist at first, but then just a libertarian, et cetera. The problem with that is uh, at the moment, every crisis we face, you know, we can sort of say it's caused by, this idea that, you know, you can create a world through belief, butting up against like brute materiality, if you want.
2: Can you illustrate?
1: Well, I'll start with like the cost of living crisis and inflation, basically. (laughs) Because like modern macroeconomics is, in many ways, it is very similar to sort of chaos magic, basically. It's basically about, you know, central banks are tasked with, with trying to act on belief and expectations, trying to do certain things in order to, to change pe- people's expectations about what the future is going to be like. So perhaps you put up interest rates just to give a signal to the markets as, a, 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 as it's so that prices are going to be stable in the future and then that will manifest itself and will become stable prices, et cetera. The problem is like the inflation at the moment is caused by something else. You know, Ultimately, you know, it's caused by, um, by the fact that we have this asset economy. And so basically it's like a tinderbox for any supply constraints. But the supply constraints... Okay, it's a world war in in Ukraine, but it's also just climate change, basically, right? Climate change is this brute reality that is causing causing inflation, is going to cause higher prices, and that is not affected by belief. Do you know what I mean? It's the same with like all of the sort of conspiracy theories, right wing denialism, denialism of COVID denialism of, of of climate change. Like there are brute realities out there which are not which you cannot alter by belief, and that's what. Centrist theories of of, of belief and, and and you know magical voluntarism about around that and like right wing denialism and right wing ideas that you can just believe uh, uh, believe a world into being etc that you know you come up against brute brute realities which can't be can't be changed and one of those is that zoonotic diseases are contagious that happens whether you believe in it or not the other one is like the carrying capacity for carbon in the atmosphere that's like the boiling point of water at a particular Atmospheric pressure, you know, it's 100 degrees. That's it, doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not, that's still going to take effect. You know what I mean?
0: Well, this status of belief, the relationship between belief and desire is important here, isn't it? Because mm. when we use the phrase magical thinking as a pejorative in kind of everyday or political language, we're referring specifically to the idea that people behave as if some, they, something that wanting something to be true can make it be true. And then The great principle of scientific rationality, one of the great principles of scientific rationality, also what Freud calls the reality principle, is the idea that just because you want something to be true, that does not affect whether it's true or not. The level of you wanting something to be true or not does not actually affect its truth or or otherwise. But is that true with the self? Like I can't. Well, this is the whole question. That's where the gray zone yeah. comes in. The gray zone comes in to the extent that, well, is that true? I mean, the ancient belief in kind of ritual practice and magic was that there were. It was also indeed one something to be true doesn't make it true, but you might be able to persuade the gods to make the thing you want be true. Be, be true without you having to have done anything else necessarily. You might be able to persuade the gods.
2: Uh, sorry to interrupt, but isn't this back to power again? Because can we just? There's a distinct thing there about like, if you're trying to make something happen, like, like I believe, like I can't cook and I believe that I will be able to cook and then you learn how to cook is very different to I believe that a million pounds will fall from the sky or I will become a millionaire without making, doing any work or I will win the lottery without like knowing the odds or whatever. That's just, it's just substantially different if it's within your power scientifically within your power to be able to make that thing happen.
0: Well, I think that's true. Uh, I think that's right. Um, but I think then the question of what is and isn't within our power or what it even means for things to be within our power, that raises really interesting questions totally. you raised earlier, Nadia, about the, about the nature of intentionality and the nature of agency. Because, I mean, historically, there's a very blurry distinction between magic and mysticism. And so for example, within you know, within the Asian sort of contemplative traditions, within the Indian sort of tantric and Vedic traditions and within traditions like esoteric Buddhism, for example, there's this persistent belief that if you meditate enough, you will acquire certain sort of mystical powers, you know, whether it's the powers of divination or flight or levitation. But those things are actually just a dangerous distraction on your path to enlightenment and what it means to achieve enlightenment is not to achieve these mystical abilities to realize some of your desires but to simply become liberated from even having those desires at all and that's simply to to be at one with the cosmos is to not is to have freed yourself from the illusion of selfhood and the desires that it produces And there's comparable, there are, I mean, certainly in the Western tradition as well, actually. Most of what passes for Western esotericism and occult and magic practice today and from the early 20th century is derived from practices which emerged mostly in the sort of. You know, what historians today call late antiquity, the kind of later period of the Roman Empire, uh, the sort of period that coincides with, say, early Christianity. And, but most of those practices at the time were understood by the people involved in them not really as magical but as mystical they were involved with, that you were trying to commune with the gods not for the purposes of achieving something in the world or manifesting some desire but because communing with the gods is the highest form of spiritual elevation that can be that a human can achieve so in a sense it is it was again it was about sort of losing a sense of yourself rather than acquiring a sense of yourself and for me I mean from my perspective philosophically there is something really important about the idea that, Indeed, you know the self is a construct. The idea, the whole idea of the individual self, is partly it's a product of kind of you know capitalist ideology and liberal ideology, and that it's really it's important to be able to sometimes kind of emancipate yourself from that by whatever means, whether that's through the practice of political solidarity or, and mutual aid, or whether that's through meditation or whatever. And that there's a continuity for me between all those things actually, and that yeah, you know, you're not just worrying about yourself or you're not just trying to improve yourself. You're doing you're going beyond yourself in some deliberate way. And that sort of opening up to the 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 cosmic, if you like, the cosmic meaning, not just you know, the sort of the, the mystical or the, the mystificatory, but meaning just the general existence of an infinite field of relationships that we're all inserted in all the time, whether we know it or not, or like it or not. That is, you know, that's a really important part of existence. It's one of the functions of music, of you know, philosophy, of art, you know, of, you know draw, you know, certain kind, all kinds of practices that might involve drugs, that might be playing games, like any loads of the stuff we talk about. It's about this sort of opening on onto the cosmic, and that a perspective, a sort of perspective which is open to those things, raises all sorts of really profound questions about the nature of agency, and it might be possible to cultivate a certain sensitivity to the ways in which you can individually or with other people around you alter things about your life in ways that will have knock-on effects and have outcomes that you want and at other times it might involve simply acknowledging the the absolute limitations on your agency on it might involve just understanding that you simply can't change certain things certain things are outside your control and and you'll just you know you'll just torture yourself if you imagine that they are within your purview. And I think often when people talk about magic or people think of the the idea of the a world being enchanted or disenchanted or people think about things seeming magical or feeling magical, a lot of the time what they are referring to is this center. There is a whole dimension of experience which is outside that of it completely individualized, privatized intention, intentionality. You know, the kind of liberal, capitalistic model of the self and its relationship to the world is, A, you are completely separate from the world and everything else, and all that really matters is your private interiority. That's the site of authentic experience.
2: Yeah, which is an issue in itself. Yeah, like you said, this whole thing yeah. of, like, am I authentic mm-hmm. internals? And that's the, the, yeah,
0: yeah, go on, go on. And the, and the and then what it means to have agency in the world is to, is for that rational, calculating, privatised self to be able to make plans and then achieve its objectives. Uh, usually involving like enriching itself, and I think that there's probably there are other ways of relating to the world within which that is you you don't be, you don't think of yourself as just, just completely separate, distinct individu- individual. You don't think of intentionality and agency simply in terms of I'm going to formulate a plan for myself and realise that plan in order to you know, acquire something or achieve something. You know, you might think in much more complex terms, and often I think think and I think magic. And mysticism, or, or ways of kind of, are ways of giving voice to, or giving expression to, it some awareness of, or some desire for, an awareness of that much wider way of experiencing the world. Which for me is fundamentally, it is about, you know, what I call, I've called in some of my writing, I've called the infinite relationality of existence the fact that everything is everything is connected to everything else in ways which can't be ultimately enumerated or denumerated like we are all completely mutually independent with each other and with everything else in existence to some extent in ways which can't be ever fully adumbrated or counted and that is yeah you know, it is a really important dimension of experience and i think often say uh, it's not you know one way in which people have historically thought about it is by personifying the universe both aspects of the universe by thinking about it in terms of gods or entities or spirits or but from a certain point of view you know, those are all ways of confronting the sort of the limits of the individual Uh, and the you know those are all ways of of thinking about the fact that uh, to think of ourselves purely as kind of isolated individuals is is really limiting and is really problematic i remember once actually i heard some guy who was like a full time sort of yoga teacher it's like a yoga monk basically talking about the concept of karma for example and his justification for the concept of karma he said look people think karma means that uh, you do good stuff and you get rewarded by the universe and he says he said that's ridiculous like what you know how would that even work like what would that mechanism be you know the universe isn't like a good par- a parent like handing out you know points to the you know, or a teacher who ends up points to you for being good or bad but it what it is is a way of thinking about the fact that in an in an extremely complex social world in which your your actions will have constantly have effects on other people around you which will then have and their actions will have effects on you in ways which you can't possibly actually map or predict or know it's a fair it's just it's a safe rule of thumb that if you do nice things and good things, then more nice good things and and good things will happen around you, not because of some law of exchange that the the universe uh, applies, but simply because of the interconnectedness of people and their actions. And I found that really persuasive and a really interesting way of thinking about the fact that in, in some ways... Yeah, you know, the language of magic and the language of mysticism are can be just ways of getting to grips with and acknowledging the sheer complexity of of existence, in ways which, you know, sort of individualistic thinking or, you know, nineteenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century rationalism, you know, can't really get to grips with in, in the same way.
1: I think that might be a way to get back to what I actually do find attractive about the KLF, that their, their sort of practices. Well, I think there's two things going on. One of them, they're trying to point to the sort of magical thinking that go that is around money you know money as is, is a fetish what they were really burning was just pieces of paper up in that yeah well it's an important
0: point you know money is all just based on faith i mean it's something economic yeah. historians will tell you all the time all, all money is actually yeah. government debt in effect it's effectively debt which has been issued by the government yeah. credit credere to believe yeah no government in the world could afford, could actually pay back the debts that it technically owes by by having issued money. You know, we do, I mean, all all paper money is effectively credit notes issued by governments on the assumption that not all of those debts will ever be called in at one time. Because if they if they were, it would bankrupt every government. That's
1: how money works. Yeah, it's also like I was talking about the central bank earlier. You know, people talk about people use magical words to talk about what central banks do. They talk about things such as the confidence fairy. We need to get the confidence fairy going because we need to reinstall confidence in the markets and these animal spirits, Mm. animal spirits indeed. But like, um, yeah, so that's in in some ways that's what's going on with the KLF burning that money. They're saying, they're saying, look, you know, this you're the ones who have got magical thinking. We're sort of trying to burst that magical thinking and make you realise. You know, of course, you know that we probably can't live in a world without some sort of uh, uh, magical thinking because that would be, you know, a world in which there and uh, uh, where there is complete understanding of everything, which is probably impossible. But the other way we could think about it is what I liked about you know the whole what I like about the whole weirdness of it um, is that it's it's a way of like saying, well, look, we need to re-enchant the world in some sort of way. You know, that's how we get through. Through life, I was I re, I reading a book by Ben Myers recently called *The Perfect Golden Circle*. It's just a novel about um, a couple of people who are doing crop circles in the early 1990s, and you know they they, they keep these really strict um, rules about secrecy, etc. You know they never reveal what's going on or why they're doing it, just as the KLF never reveal you know, why they burnt that million pounds. Why well, they're not quite sure why either. You know, it's a way in which they, they, what what people are, who are doing those crop circles, or at least in the fictional version, they're trying to introduce a little bit of mystery into the world, a little bit of enchantment. Do you know what I mean? And like beneath that is that there is a sort of truth that like, yes, you know, the world is incredibly complex. You know, everything is connected. We are all connected. And, you know, we go through life with these illusions of, of a self, etc. the illusions of money and all these sorts of things. There is something there that you'd want to defend, I think of course, from everything is connected, you can get these huge leaps of causation in, you know, which I find really suspicious, basically, just because everything's connected, you know, on a quantum level, observation changes reality. And so then people make these leaps from that into in that case, you know, we can have, you know, our beliefs will alter reality on a different level of scale. It just doesn't work like that, I think. You know, it might work like that to a certain extent for a certain period of time among social systems, but it doesn't work it when you get to the brute reality of like natural systems, such as climate change. Okay, uh, Susie in
0: the Banshees, uh, Spellbound. The album it's from is called Juju, which is a, a nineteen eighty one album, and Juju is is a word, a kind of a term meaning kind of voodoo or black magic or voodoo or something like that, and the whole album is themed around this kind of horror imagery or imagery from horror films or references to black magic. And from 1981, it is really a founding document of of the whole goth genre. And it is, it is really interesting. It's a really interesting transitional record between post-punk as practiced by groups like Joy Division and Gang of Four and goth as it would come to be recognized in the 1980s. And it is absolutely a document of that moment in the first half of the '80s, when sort of interest in the occult and magic was, you know, seeping into the post-punk scene. In fact, I mean, Susie and the Banshees. Uh, Susie and the Banshees are from London, aren't they? But Le- I mean, Leeds in particular, which was widely seen as being the kind of capital of goth in the '80s, at least for a while. You know, Leeds was a real centre of that post-punk interest in. In the occult and magic, you know, there was a really famous occult shop in Leeds, and it was really one of the homes of chaos magic as well. So, even though Susie and the Banshees and Templar Psychic and Psychic TV and these people were all from London, Leeds for some re- Leeds was a real kind of centre of this stuff.
1: And um, yeah, you had bands like The Mission, etc., and it was all there was a social scene based around the Phono nightclub, basically, which was the Goth central of uh, West Yorkshire
0: yeah well, i can't remember the name of the shop i mean i remember because i mean i haven't really talked about this on the show like i was very interested in the sort of the idea of the occult in in my kind of early to mid-teens and then once i realized how much of it was dependent upon kind of forms of pseudo religious practice still i completely lost interest i remember saying to somebody like why would i why would i like if if you're going to go around worshiping gods why would you worship these loser gods from like antiquity like why not just become a catholic uh <laughs> and um yeah but it's it, but it's a fascinating record spell band. There are this arpeggiated guitar. is so they're sort of developing this sound which had been developed already a bit by Joy Division. It's very very distinct. You hear <laughs> laughter
1: cracking through the walls and spinning. You have no choice you
0: Another good record to play again from the 80s would be uh, the classic MC900 Foot Jesus uh, record Truth is out of style it, which you know it, it contains the lyrics you know we all create our own reality and is absolutely exploring that kind of those ideas like you know that were informing both things like Chaos Magic MC900 Foot Jesus he comes out of that kind of American weird Weird culture scene of the 80s, like very sort of postmodern, self consciously postmodern idea that you could self consciously play around with identity and meaning and narrative and truth. And it's a very funny sort of take on that idea. Pay attention. Because
1: I right, am going to reveal the secret. Jam.
0: The bush? One of the claims of the Marxist tradition, going back to the 19th century, has been a claim that that it's a tradition of thinking which is completely scientific, as it strips itself of all naive illusions, and that it's different from utopian socialism. It, it has no, it doesn't believe in the supernatural in any way. It's fully materialist. It recognises the inescapability of historical context and the limits they place on human agency. And over the years, you know, over the decades, uh, that Marxist sort of scientific tradition has uh, frequently been accused of not quite being able to capture something about the, the, yeah, the, the, the magical nature of existence. I mean, it, this is an important set of ideas for us on ACFM, I think, isn't it? Because partly... You know, the whole our idea of the weird left, or you know, acid communism, or psychedelic socialism, it, arguably, it is just one iteration of ideas that people have been kicking around since the mid nineteenth century, which is the idea that a socialist, anti capitalist politics might, at the same time, be able to be completely committed to certain kinds of hard realism. Of the kind Keir's been talking about and of the kind we'd all be committed to, while also acknowledging that there are aspects of human existence and even more than human existence, which mystical traditions, magical traditions, psychedelic culture, all kinds of different sets of uh, ideas and practices that we're interested in are trying to get to grips with in ways which can't be simply dismissed. I mean, let's be clear there's a certain tradition, there is a certain socialist tradition. Mm Um, which thinks pretty much everything we talk about on this show is just stupid. That what we Mostly what we talk about on this show is a series of things which should all be dismissed as distractions from revolutionary practice, um, nonsensical mystifications of the hard reality of human existence, and the bold historical truth that the only thing that will ever actually deliver the kind of uh, outcomes we'd all like for us ourselves as individuals or humanity collectively is disciplined you know so- rigorously scientific revolutionary action you know that is a tr- that is a like a criticism which people can and certainly do make of us and like the, you know the whole project on this show you know the flip side of that is that there is this you know there is there is a tradition of experimentation with things ranging from meditative practice to surrealist art pranks you know to you know raves or games or all kinds of other fun stuff where people are trying to explore all these things in a way which don't completely depart from uh, the basic idea that you have to understand the world scientifically and rationally in order to be able to change it. I mean, that's always the zone we're exploring in some ways, isn't it? We're always trying to explore this zone between just abandoning yourself to complete hedonism, complete self-indulgence, just complete neurotic, narcissistic self-obsession, magical thinking as such, and on the other hand, d- denying that the things which people who are interested in in things like magic are, are actually real and important aspects of existence. So I think... Mm-hmm. You know, from that point of view, I think we're interested in the idea. What she, the Robotham, and apparently called in the late sixties, magical Marxism. I've never got from her what she had, what what she meant by it, but apparently she was She and a friend proposed at some point in the late sixties there should be such a thing as magical Marxism. And I think you know, I, I think we're we're basically sympathetic to that idea, aren't we?
1: It's a balancing act, isn't it? In one way, I want to puncture magical thinking um, because a lot of that magical thinking is quite problematic and it's gone in problematic ways, you know.
2: We haven't even said the word woo-woo.
1: Yeah, woo-woo. is. Definitely- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But like, you know, uh, in another way, <laughs> at the same time, you know, we could get, be, give a much more generous interpretation to a lot of these practices that they are like techniques in which people are trying to maintain some sort of openness to the complexity of the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is right. Or, so that, or
2: escapism. Which one is it? It depends.
1: Perhaps, yeah. But like, what would be the attraction of that as escapism? I think it would be that you know, trying to maintain an openness to the to the complexity of the world, which distinguishes it, I think, from the sort of Richard Dawkins type attitude towards um, reason, in which. You know, basically, reason sits outside of of, of history and hits out sits outside of, of of social social structures and these sorts of things. You know,
0: yes, I think well, I think that's exactly right. That is the phrase: openness to the complexity of the world. That openness part that is what we in that is what we're interested mm. in here. And 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 I think, I mean, part of the gambit of things like like magical and meditative practice is the idea that openness to the complexity of the world is something that can be cultivated. I think, and I think, I sort of think it can actually. I think, and I think at their best, I think techniques, I don't know about magical practice as such. I'm pretty skeptical, I have to say. I'm pretty I'm pretty skeptical about things like ritual magic as being particularly useful tools, but I can see why for some people they might be. I'm not even personally particularly interested in things like shamanism or kind of animism, or you know, Husker, but I can see how they would be useful for people. And I think all of these things are the most productive, they are techniques for cultivating an openness to the complexity of the world. And I think that it, actually that openness to the complexity to the world is necessary for effective political practice, actually. I think it, it is necessary. It, it, it's necessary. It's necessity might only manifest itself in the sense that, well, once you have a bit more openness to the complexity of the world, you're a bit more mature, you're a bit wiser, you're less likely to get angry at people at inappropriate moments, you're more able to cope with defeat, etc. It might only manifest itself in those ways, but I think it probably does also manifest itself in like an ability to appreciate nature, like as Richard Seymour has been trying to explore in his most recent work or an an ability to you know open yourself to the cosmic in the ways that Deleuze and Guattari write about so there is an interesting continuity between all those things and I think that is really valuable and I think the kind of manifesting I think what Nadia was talking about as manifesting I would say actually that is also that ability to figure out how you might get something done even in your own life, to effect change. I think, that, I think openness to the complexity of the world is completely necessary to that. that is the, and that, prob- that is the difference between being able to do, do something like that and effect changes even just in your own life on those terms. And the sort of nonsense of thinking that if you wish for it hard enough, the universe will let you win the lottery. Because that is not about openness to the complexity of the world.
2: But the affect is the removal of despair. Yeah, which is what people are looking for. Yeah, is that to be able to move to, to to literally move, you have to believe that you can move. Yeah, but and so that's that's what I what I mean. And so there's there is a the world, there is a there is a a place uh, where we can find that doesn't just see things as you know, I am the individual atomized actor that exists in some kind of like fishbowl of authenticity. But also understanding that that it's understandable that human beings want want to, to be actors in their lives, and you know the removal of despair through belief then act makes sense, like I get it. you know it works for me.
1: My partner is now called Alice Netta. she changed her name basically, but when she first adopted that name it was it was in that grand punk rock style of trying to evade the attentions of the dole office, basically. So lots of punks called themselves by different names. But she chose Alice Netta because it was the name of, of one of the famous witches around Burnley, the Pendle Witches. And in fact, you know, Alice Netta was a historic person who and, and the, the reason she was declared as a witch and, and, and burnt was actually a boundary dispute around property. She had she was she owned property, it was quite unusual for a woman, a single woman at that time. All very interesting, you say, here. but um, recently Alice has been doing some genealogy, tracing her family tree, and it turns out that she is actually related to Alice Nutter.
2: No way! <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Cosmic. So Alice Nutter would be like the, her great-grandmother, I think, if you said that's great... That's
2: magic, man. If you said
1: great six times or something like that. So that's either magical synchronicity or... Perhaps if you go back that far, everybody's related to everyone. I haven't worked out the odds, and that's important not to work out the odds (laughs) (laughs) so that we maintain an openness to the world on that bombshell.